Thank you so much for joining us as we continue with our series, At What Cost? Amos on Trafficking. And I think for a lot of you and for some of us on our team as well, this series has really been an eye-opener, right? Because having grown up uh, as a millennial, right, all I knew of trafficking was movies like Taken 1, 2, and 3, the trilogy, right? And I knew about the documentaries that you can find on Netflix that shows trafficking as something that happens in some distant land to people who don't look like me and and didn't grow up on cul-de-sacs and in suburban neighborhoods. And so trafficking for me always felt pretty far off. Trafficking for me always felt like something that didn't really happen here in Minnesota, or at least didn't happen in my community. And, and if it did, I just wasn't seeing it. So, so how big of a problem and how pervasive could it really be, right? But it wasn't until three years ago that a classmate in seminary told me that men and boys and girls are routinely trafficked in ice fishing, fishing houses during ice fishing opener up on Minnesota lakes. And I thought about the fact that so many of my neighbors and so many people in my family ice fished, and I thought about the fact that none of them even knew that it was happening in ice houses on the same lakes as them. And then about a year ago, I learned that Minnesota is the leading exporter of traffic teens in Las Vegas, that the majority of traffic teens in Las Vegas come from Minnesota more than any other state. And I thought about the fact that that when I was in Las Vegas this past winter, I wasn't really thinking about the fact that people I was walking past might be victims of human trafficking. And then this past week, I actually learned that traffickers call Minnesota the Minnesota Pipeline to describe the locations where they keep trafficked girls and women as they come inside and outside of the state. That it's so pervasive in our state that they actually have a term that they use in the trafficking industry to talk about the, the routes of safe houses they have. And it wasn't until a few weeks ago that I learned that it's happening on busy metropolitan streets just downtown that we probably go to a lot for work or for enjoyment. So a few weeks ago, I went to Minneapolis to see Hamilton at the Orpheum. And the story is not just to tell you that I went and saw Hamilton when it was in town, but I went to see Hamilton at the Orpheum, right? And after we had left the show, my mom and I stopped to talk to a young man named Jake uh, who was homeless and lived on the streets of Minneapolis. And he was standing outside of the Orpheum, and so we were just conversing with him and hearing about his life and how he came to Minnesota and, and talking to him about some of the options that are available locally for him to find help or shelter or for him to get new identification cards. And as we were talking, I kind of had that sense, right? You get sort of that, like, that spidey sense that something's happening behind you. Right, I kind of had that sense that something was going on behind us. And so I turned my head a little bit, and I saw these four gentlemen that were kind of coming closer and closer to my mom. And as we kept talking, it became pretty clear that Jake was seeing them too. And so Jake kind of, you know, told us, like, let's go down a block. Where'd you guys park? And we were like, well, we parked in LaSalle, you know, where Crave is and and all that. And so he moved us down a block, and once we were down a block, uh, he looked back and made sure it was clear and then said, all right, have a great night you know, and hugged us and said, bye. And so we went inside and we talked to the security guards just to say, hey, there's this kid out there that could really use some help. And is there any way that you guys as security guards have any connections that you can connect him with so that he can find some shelter or or get new identification cards? Is there a way that you can help this kid out? And as we had this conversation, we shared about this weird experience we had just had too. And more nonchalantly than I probably would have said it, the security guard said, oh yeah, there's human trafficking that happens down here all the time. He was like, and and the people that live on the streets, they know who the traffickers are, and so chances are pretty good that those three guys and the other guy with them, that they were traffickers, and that Jake knew that, and that's why he moved you down a block. 
And I kind of had this moment where I realized that I spend a lot of time down on Hennepin Avenue, right? Whether it's taking advantage of student tickets while I still have them to go to shows, right? Or going out to dinner with friends or heading down to Candyland for a sweet treat. And I never once knew that human trafficking was happening on those streets. And for about the next hour and a half, they told us how pervasive that problem is on Hennepin Avenue. They said that there are women and girls and, and young men that are routinely trafficked on Hennepin Avenue, that in fact traffickers will go up to businessmen in parking garages and offer them girls and drugs. And they said that there's actually a wide network of human traffickers that list the LaSalle Plaza on Hennepin Avenue as the location of their services. And so they'll send Johns there, and then the Johns will get picked up and get taken to places where they can meet with their victims. And so wanting to fact check that information, when I got home, I started doing some research on this group that they were telling us about, this network of traffickers that's trafficking women all throughout the Midwest and listing LaSalle Plaza as one of their locations. And as I went on the website for the group that they were talking about, I noticed that on the top of the page, it said, established since 1992 as the Goliath. We have done over 22,000 successful parties. But this network of human traffickers all throughout the Midwest that meets in Minneapolis, and they listed locations in, in Madison and in all these other Midwestern towns, they boast themselves as the Goliath, having done over 22,000 successful parties. And it was then that I realized, and throughout this series, that we've realized that trafficking is real, that trafficking is wrong, but that you can make a difference. There's a place to write that down in your notes, that trafficking is real, trafficking is wrong, but you can make a difference. And trafficking is happening right under our noses, right? It's happening right under our noses in our schools, and it's happening right under our noses in our suburban neighborhoods, and it's happening right under our noses as we go to dinner or go to shows or enjoy a night out on the town. But as I read that website, and as I thought about the fact that they boast in being the Goliath, I couldn't help but laugh a little bit, right? Because as a Christian who grew up with the story of David and Goliath, we know how that story ends. And the Goliaths never stand for very long, right? Not as long as there are Davids to take them down. And so in a world in which sex traffickers consider themselves the Goliaths of the industry and boast about their strength and their power, the world needs Davids who are willing to stand up against them. And I think our church throughout this series has an opportunity to be a David in the Goliath of the sex trafficking industry. That we have an opportunity in our daily lives to be people who take down these massive, massive industries. And throughout this series, we're going to give you guys real and, real and practical and tangible ways that you can do this, right? And so we want to be the Davids in a world of Goliath of sex trafficking. And Amos, who we're hearing from throughout this series, was a David in a world of his own Goliath. So he wasn't a professional prophet. He wasn't a prophet by family line. And in fact, he was a farmer and a sheep herder. So he wasn't the big guy that you would expect the word of the Lord to come from. And on top of that, he was a David in a Goliath land because Israel was pretty peaceful and prosperous at the time that he was delivering the message. And you can just imagine this little shepherd boy and this little farmer stepping up to tell an entire nation that there are some problems, right? He was the David in front of a Goliath nation that was big and prosperous and felt like everything was going great. And this David of Amos stands up to give a message that's going to change their entire outlook. 
And it's to this nation that Amos is called to deliver a difficult message. And in this series, we're looking at this difficult message, and it's hard for us, too, if we're honest, right? I mean, I might be biased because it's my week, but I think Amos 6 is actually probably one of the toughest parts of Amos' entire message to Israel. Because he's standing up against a nation that's big and prosperous and comfortable, and he's saying that there are some issues that they need to take care of. He's saying that God has some concerns with them. And it's easy, I think, to look at Amos and to see this God that just seems kind of angry, right? Or to see this God that just seems kind of vengeful and and to wonder if if that's God's character. But this past week, as I was reading into this passage and, and reading what some experts say about this entire book, they said that it's not that God is angry for the sake of being angry. He's angry because his people aren't doing what they were called to do. And in fact, because they're oppressing and abusing the very people they were called to protect and serve. Right? And so God's anger isn't just misdirected. It's directed at a very real problem that people are being hurt and abused and no one is doing anything about it. I started to think, don't we want a God that gets really angry at injustice? Don't we want a God who, when we're the ones being abused and left behind and hurt, that he is mad that that is happening, and he wants to make it right? And so as we read Amos, we see the heart of God for people in our society who have been hurt and abused and forgotten and left behind, particularly by the very people who have been called to protect them. We see that God cares about those people and that he wants restoration to happen, and he wants his people to be at the forefront of that. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, open with me to Amos chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we would love to send you home with one today. And so there are Bibles at the back, and please feel free to grab one of those as our gift to you this morning. So Amos chapter 6 says, starts out really easy, right? Really comfortable. Um, It says, woe to you who are complacent in Zion. Woe to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalna and look at it. Go from there to the great Hamath and go from there to Gath and Philistia. Are they better than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster, but you bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David, and you improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful, and you use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve on the ruins of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. And then in verse 11, he continues to say, For the Lord has given the command that he will smash the great houses into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on rocky crags? Does one plow the sea with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in Lodabar and you say, Did we not take care Nahum by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebohamath to the valley of Arabah. So it's an easy passage to preach on, and we're all going to feel really comfortable by it, right? No, this passage is incredibly difficult, because I think sometimes if we read this passage, we we start to think about our own lives and and the comfort that we enjoy, and, and it's just a tough, tough message. Because what Amos is getting at here is that the Israelites are incredibly comfortable and prosperous, 
They're being able to drink wine out of bowlfuls. They're laying on ivory beds. They're getting to sit around and play music all day and just enjoy themselves. And Amos is saying, in the midst of all that, you have lost the purpose of what you were made to do. And so in verse 2, Amos points their direction to the cities that surround them. He says, go to Kalana and look at it. Go from there down to Great Hamath and go from there to Gath and Philistia. Are they better than your two kingdoms? And is their land larger than yours? You see, he's directing them to three cities that made up the Fertile Crescent, which, if your eighth grade history knowledge holds, was the most prosperous area in the region, right? And so he's saying, look at all these lands that were just as prosperous, if not more prosperous than you. Look at all these these areas that were just as secure as you. And the reason why he's pointing their direction to them is because those lands have already been destroyed. And so he's kind of saying, look at these things that, that other people trusted in. Look at these other strongholds. Are you better than them? Do you think that can't happen to you? And he's drawing their attention to places that had already fallen. And then he continues on, if you fast forward to verse 5 and 6, and he says, You strum away on your harps like David, and you improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful, and you use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. And in the original Hebrew, it actually says you are not sickened over the ruin of Joseph. What he's saying is you aren't sickened by the own sin that's happening within your nation. You aren't sickened by the fact that other people are being abused and left behind and forgotten in your nation because you're too distracted with all your musical instruments and with your wine and with the ability for you to relax and have fun. And so we learn through this passage something that holds true for them and holds true for us. There's a place to write this in your notes. We learn that comfort feeds complacency. Comfort feeds complacency. I think it's precisely sometimes the times that we're most comfortable that it's most difficult for us to realize that injustices are happening around us. Because we're so focused on the fact that we're able to relax, that we're able to use all of our finances for for the purposes that we want it to, that we sometimes just don't realize that other injustices are happening. And does God want us to have rest? Yes. Does God want us to experience peace and comfort? Yes. But I think sometimes our comfort goes too far into a place where we're able to be complacent about the things that he has called us to do. And just like the nation of Israel, because they were so prosperous and because they were able to be so comfortable, we're forgetting their call to take care of people who were being abused and left behind and neglected. Sometimes we can forget that that's our call too because it's so easy for us to experience a peaceful and prosperous life. But I think God calls us to more than this. Because I think if we look at complacency, and there's a place to write this in your notes, complacent people say, it's not my family, it's not my workplace, it's not my schools, it's not my community. It's not my family, it's not my workplace, it's not my schools, it's not my community. Our complacency can lead us away from being able to recognize the downfalls among us Or they can lead us to believe that we have no responsibility for our spheres of influence. So it can lead us to believe either, uh, in the case of human trafficking, right, that human trafficking isn't happening in our families or in our schools or in our neighborhoods or in our workplaces. Or it can lead us to say, and even if it is, how can I possibly end this multi-billion dollar industry, right? What power do I possibly have here? And so we can come to find ourselves powerless and complacent in the face of that. And so we talked last week, Pastor Chris and I, about the fact that as a church, in 11 years, we have never had an issue of misconduct with one of our staff or volunteers. 
that we've never had an allegation of misconduct with one of our staff and volunteers. And how as a church in 11 years, that could lead us to be really comfortable and complacent, right? To think, well, in 11 years, we've been fine, and, and we trust our leaders, and, and we trust our volunteers, right? But instead, it makes us all the more responsible for continuing that trend, right? It makes us all the more responsible to look at, well, what can we do to continue to increase safety for our kids and our teens? What can we continue to do to screen volunteers well? Because we believe that we have a responsibility for the people that you have entrusted us with, and so we want to make sure that we're doing that well. And so instead of complacency, we're choosing to step forward into new ways of being protective and into new ways of making sure that the lost and the least and left behind are cared for in our communities. And we want to push back against complacency, right? We want to push back against this opportunity for us to be complacent and for us to just be able to rest and to not step forward in in any ways of, of pushing forward for justice because our complacency carries a high cost. And there's a place to write that in your notes. Our complacency carries a high cost. So in verse 3, Amos addresses Israel. And he says to them, he says, You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You see, while Israel was looking around at their fallen neighbors and thinking that they hadn't made, they were pushing off the possibility that it could ever happen to them, right? They were looking at these neighbors that had fallen and they were saying, but that's not going to be our story because we're too powerful and strong and we're too prosperous and our kings have had these long reigns and everything's going great, so it just won't be us. And in doing so, in pushing off the inevitable, they were bringing near a reign of terror. In a lot of the commentaries that I read, they said the reason why Amos points out the fact that they're eating fattened calves and and that they're lying on beds of ivory is because all of those examples are ways in which the, the poorest among them were actually being abused and left behind. That as they were eating all these fattened calves, they were ignoring their responsibility to feed the poor and the forgotten and the abused. And as they were laying on their ivory beds, they were neglecting the fact that there were people all throughout their community that didn't have a bed to sleep in. And so as they were doing all of their daily activities, they were ignoring the fact that it carried a high cost for the people around them. So while Israel was trying to run away from their prophetic witness, they had, in verse 12, turned justice into a poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. And their actions of complacency led them to oppress those among them. So as I worked on this message this past week, I was reading a commentary that said that Israel's primary problem was that they had put their self-interest above the interests of their nation. That they had put their self-interest above the interests of everyone else around them. Right? So what does this look like for us as it relates to sex trafficking? Because I think if we're honest, as we go through this passage, we start to see some parallels between Israel then and some of our communities today, right? And so what does it look like that our complacency carries a high cost in sex trafficking? Well, as a product of the 90s and the early 2000s, I couldn't help but think about the fact that I grew up watching some MTV shows like Pimp My Ride, right? Or if one of your friends was really cool, you would call them a pimp. And you think about the fact that actually that word and the connotations for people stuck in sex trafficking isn't cool. But we accepted it for so many years as just cool, that it was harmless, that it, that it was just a joke, that it was saying that something was really, really cool or, or really ingenious, right? And as I read some of the books for this series, and particularly the book Girls Like Us, Rachel Lloyd, the author, talked about the impact of pimp language coming to mean something good to sex traffickers 
right? That that language has never been good for sex traffickers, but for the rest of the world, it's become something that we say when something's really cool. And then you think about other ways that our society has become complacent. You think about the fact that Pretty Woman is a romance movie, right? Which is crazy if you think about it, because Pretty Woman is a story of a John and one of his victims falling in love. It's not a romance movie, right? And you think about the fact that there are movies that portray violence against women and abusive relationships as normal. And you think about the fact that advertising contains over-sexualization of women. And you think about that, the fact that pornography usage is on the rise. And the fact that that actually fuels the sex trade industry because then it causes people to go out and purchase prostitutes for their use. And you think about all these things that have come to be normal in our society, that have come to be things that we just accept as happening, and and if it is happening, we don't have power to stop it. And the fact that actually our complacency in these areas perpetuates a system where women and men are trafficked and abused. And the fact of the matter is that Christ has given us freedom to choose what to engage in, right? And in the New Testament, over and over again, we're reminded that that freedom is for us to use for good, not for us to use to abuse the people around us right, or to draw them away from the message that Christ offers. And so how are we using our freedom? You see, because Christ has given us free will in this area, and because we're blessed to be in a system that's relatively prosperous and safe and secure, it's going to be that much more difficult for us to be people who aren't complacent. Because we're in a system that's prosperous and secure, because we have entertainment at our fingertips, because we have uh, financial stability, it's going to be that much more difficult for us to be a people who aren't complacent. And so God is calling us to be really, really, really intentional about reaching out and being observant. God is calling us to be people who aren't complacent because we're reaching out to the people around us, because we're recognizing injustice as it happens, and because we're working to make a difference for the lives of men and women worldwide. There's a place to write this in your notes, that non-complacent people say, not in my family, not in my workplace, not in my schools, not in my community. As people who choose to not be complacent, as people who are awoken from our our slumber of thinking that everything is always going to be really great and that, that even though it's great for us, it means it must be great for everyone else, right? As people who are awoken to the reality of sex trafficking in our community, we have to be people who say, this will not happen in my family. This will not happen in my workplace. This will not happen in my schools. And this will not happen in my community. And that we will take measures to do whatever it can to see that that system isn't perpetuated around, among our children or among the people we work with. To see that survivors of sex trafficking are able to find employment in our businesses. To see that in our community we're recognizing the signs and symptoms and taking action to, to make sure that men and women are rescued from slavery. You see, non-complacent people use the resources at their disposal for the benefit of others, not for their detriment. Non-complacent people commit to ensuring that abuse and trafficking finds an inhospitable environment in their circles of influence and that it dies in the areas where we stand, right? That in the areas where we as people of ECC and as people who are called by God to not be complacent, in the areas where we have influence, that sex trafficking finds no home to take root that our children are able to be safe, that we're watching out for the people that that we teach in our schools, that we're watching out for our classmates, that we're watching out for the people in our workplace, and that in our community, when we're seeing trafficking happen, we are doing everything we can to fight against it. 
non-complacent people participate in healing and restoration for both survivors and perpetrators. That we're a community where people can find hope and healing and restoration. And so over the next two weeks, Jason and Chris will unpack this more. And actually, I'm a little jealous of their two messages because I want so badly to be like, and here are all the solutions, right? And over the next two weeks, they're going to work to say as, as people and as businesses and as families and as a church, how do we fight against this? What are practical steps forward we take so that we can fight sex trafficking in our families, our workplaces, our schools, and our community? But all of this begins with us refusing to be complacent. It begins with us refusing to believe that it could not happen or does not happen in our families, our workplaces, our schools, and our community. And it begins with us choosing that this will not happen in our families, our workplaces, our schools, and our community. It begins with us being aware of what it looks like when someone is being trafficked. It begins with us being aware of what we can do to help, of us being aware of what resources are out there, and us being aware of the ways that our freedom impacts other people. Because if we use our freedom to impact other people, then we're complicit in sex trafficking. But God calls us not to be. God calls us to be a different type of people. So in a world this broken, we're invited to fight complacency and choose courageous discomfort. And there's a place to write that in your notes, that in a world this broken, we're invited to fight complacency and choose courageous discomfort. So I don't know if you guys have had a chance to stop by and meet her yet, but if you haven't, I would encourage you after the service to stop by the resource table. Uh, but over the next few weeks, we have Amanda from Trafficking Justice here with us. And she's actually going to be teaching uh, the, the Trafficking 101 night that we'll be having here in just about a week and a half. And as we prepared for this week's message, Amanda wrote to us, and she had this to say. She said, when we look at the darkness of trafficking, we can have two responses. We can become overwhelmed and consumed by the darkness, or we can choose to see it as an opportunity for God to show off his light. Our God is so big and so good and so full of light that he pierces the darkness, and he walks with us to the edge of hell, and we are not consumed or even have the burnt smell on us, and complacency will never be satisfying again. In a world this broken, where sex trafficking is happening just down our street and in our downtown cities, where it's happening online and it's happening through our phones, we are invited to fight complacency and choose a courageous discomfort that brings us right through the middle of the mess with a Savior who's holding us the whole time and who's going before us and who's shining his light through it. And walking through the hell that is sex trafficking is going to be painful and uncomfortable. It's going to involve uncomfortable conversations with your kids. It's going to involve uncomfortable conversations with coworkers. It's going to involve uncomfortable moments where you're stepping into the mess of all that it is. But if we walk forward in courage, we are going to see his light shining through. And we're going to see chains fall off. And we're going to see complacency ending. And we're going to bring freedom to captives. And as we do so, we follow in the footsteps of all that Jesus was. And so Jesus, in his time on earth, his entire time on earth was wrapped up in uncomfortable, or in, in dis, or sorry, that his entire time was wrapped up in courageous discomfort. Right? Jesus' entire time on earth was wrapped up in courageous discomfort. Everything from him coming as an infant, the creator of the universe, dependent to Jesus' actions towards men and women who had been cast aside by society. 
to the courageous discomfort of Jesus being sacrificed on the cross. His entire life was wrapped up in being a person of courageous discomfort. This past week, as I prepped the message, uh, Pastor Dan and I were chatting through some of the instances where Jesus did this. And two came to mind in particular, and it's Jesus' actions with the woman at the well and Jesus' actions with the woman caught in adultery. That in a system that chose the complacency of having to follow uh, these rules that were set up, that Jesus knelt beside these women, that he called them forward to who God had created them to be, and he freed them from the captives that were around them. He freed them from the punishment, and he rescued and saved them. And so as we follow the footsteps of Jesus, we step towards those who are being enslaved and victimized. And we leave our courageous discomfort behind, and we, choose, or we leave our dis- uncomfortable nature behind, and we choose courageous discomfort. And so now today we get to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of this man who lived his life with courageous discomfort and showed the way for us to follow.